This is like, this is like, this is like gold. No physician wants to be known as the person that signs out bombs. Welcome to show number two of Undifferentiated. Our goal in this program is to follow a complicated patient through their path in the emergency department and to illuminate the steps that it takes to really take care of a patient and think through the problems we need to address as we try to get to a final diagnosis. In our last program, we met a gentleman in his 70s who came in with flank pain, back pain that kind of radiated around to his front. We talked pretty extensively about kidney stones, about imaging modalities, and in his course in the emergency department, he's come in, he has an initial set of labs, we're waiting on a CT scan to come back, and we're thinking that CT scan is going to give us some information on what's causing his pain at this time. But as frequently happens, we're at a point where some care providers are leaving the department, and other care providers are coming on to the department. And these are important times in the emergency department. We're going to focus on the beginning of our conversation on finding ways to really make communication and handoffs clear, effective, and meaningful for our patients in the emergency department. Welcome back to Undifferentiated. So we're going to pick up where we left off in the care of our patient, and we're going to start by talking about the perilous time of sign-out. We have an expert who's going to give us some more clarity on this. But to start with, Dr. Overbeck and I are going to demonstrate a little bit of our teaching style on how to communicate effectively in the emergency department. So one of our jobs as physicians and as emergency physicians is communicating effectively. And to do this, we need to be able to tell stories really well, because the stories that we tell really helps focus the care that they're going to get from other parts of their treatment team. So to really help paint a picture of how we should tell stories in the emergency department, I've asked Dr. Overbeck to tell us the story of Star Wars. All right, so the story of Star Wars, the story of Star I Wars. I love this movie, by the way, and and I just, I my earliest memory in like 1977 was my mom saying, no, that's a PG movie, he can't go see it. It might have been R, I don't know, but she told my brother, like, he can't go see it. And my brother said, no, he's going to see it. And that was the first time I ever saw anybody sass my mom. So you know the story, right? I mean, the, the Jawas bring R2 over to the uh, little sand igloo. And uh, Luke, Luke, get your chores done. And uh, help me, Obi-Wan. You're my only hope. And Obi-Wan Kenobi? You mean old Ben Kenobi? Well, he's just a myth. You know, then they got to get on a Star Destroyer, go halfway across, you know, the, you know Parsecs and, uh, you know, Han Solo. He's going to shoot Guido because Guido is after him. I mean, there's a big bounty on Han Solo, right? Because why would everybody be after him? But that's still on. Let's, let's just make sure we know that that's still on Tatooine. That's in the bar on Tatooine. I don't want to get ahead. I just want to know that we're following the appropriate storyline. Yeah, it's, it's the fastest. Yeah, they, uh, we keep it, going. It, it made the tantamount run in 12 parsecs. So it's a uh, <laughs> tantamount. <laughs> All right, keep going. What's the rest of the story? So then um, there's multiple stories, right? Luke's got to develop from a boy into a man. And little do you know that Princess Leia is his sister because originally you're like, yow. But then Han Solo, he's got a bounty. He's got to kind of clear his name. He's a little bit of a scoundrel. Oh, you like scoundrels? I think you like dangerous men. I do not. And then there's Chewbacca for a little comic relief in there with uh, C-3PO and R2 with his appropriate whistles. So you got to go. You got to go. I think we go and we uh, 
Star Destroyer. Star Destroyer. Trash compactor. They're, they're gonna. They're in the trash compactor. Help us. We're gonna die. You know, R two save us. And then they're screaming, and they're actually living, and and C three PO is still under the impression that they're getting crushed. So they rescue the princess. They got the plans, Commander. That is how you tell the story of Star Wars. That is absolutely not how you tell anybody else in the hospital the story of Star Wars. So if you are signing somebody out or you are calling somebody up upstairs, this is how you tell the story of Star Wars. Hey, it's uh, Mike Overbeck. I'd, I'd like to tell you the story of Star Wars. So the Death Star blows up and the good guys win. Um, do you want to hear more of the details or do you want to come and see the movie yourself? So we tell stories different in the emergency department. We tell stories with the ending first. We start with the denouement, and then we tell we bring the plot up to that point. I just think that commonly the inexperienced storyteller simply vomits all the information in your lap as if they're so excited to tell you. And then there was lasers, and then they there was this little thing on the ground that, that ran around and made funny noises. And then they jumped into the trash compactor, and there was an octopus. And then, and then they you just got go, whoa, 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 whoa. Did they blow up the Death Star? Yeah, yeah, the big Death Star. Yeah, it got blown up. Okay, but- great. Okay, thank you. I'm glad they blew up the Death Star. Okay, now we can get on with taking care of the patient. So now you've heard our somewhat juvenile conversation about how we teach people how to speak correctly and tell the right stories in the emergency department. So we're not the experts on this. Dr. Smalley is the expert on this. We're going to hear what she does to teach her residents how to communicate effectively with other teams in the hospital. Hi, this is Courtney Smalley, and I am on faculty at the Cleveland Clinic working in the emergency department. You know, back in 2009, Michelle Lynn from Academic Life and Emergency Medicine did an article review on handoffs in the emergency department and kind of looked at barriers to effective handoffs. And the emergency department is a unique place. And this needs to be expanded up onto the inpatient floors as we start becoming more shift workers and patients have a physician from 7A to 7P and 7P to 7A. But in the emergency department, we have a a very unique milieu of distractions going on. And so the barriers, particularly in the emergency department, have been reducing the number of handoffs, And this comes down to different types of shifts and whether there's overlapping on shifts or not so that physicians can finish out their patient care or whether there's multiple shift changes. Distractions during sign-out. This is a huge one. We've all gone through this. You're in the middle of trying to sign out to another physician and the nurse comes up to you and says, I need an order for Zofran on this patient in room 31. You know, the patient's vomiting. And you're in the middle of signing out. You stop. You get distracted. Maybe it's a patient that's more undifferentiated, you lose your train of thought, you try to go back into talking about that patient, you maybe miss a key vital sign, a key part of their workup. And part of it is just because there's a lot of different things going on. The other issue in the emergency department is while patients on the inpatient side have a much more clearly defined plan and their plan gets kind of worked out over a longer period of time, We are trying to come up with a plan and come up with a diagnosis or rule out diagnoses in a two to three hour span. And so when we're signing out, a big part of our sign out in the emergency department needs to be anticipated changes and good sign outs anticipate changes. They talk about, I've got a young female who's 
21 years old and she's got right lower quadrant pain and we're waiting for a pregnancy test. I'm concerned that this could be appendicitis. She's not pregnant. You know, she's got this colicky pain. It could be torsion. So my plan is to obtain a CAT scan. But if that's negative, I still think we should pursue an ultrasound. You know, on my exam, I'm concerned enough that we shouldn't stop here. And that's a big part of an emergency medicine sign out is predicting the direction that a patient will go. And when you sign out offering the plan of if this is negative, I would do this. And if this is positive, I would do that. Now, that's not saying that the plan doesn't change as patients change their course and their trajectory over a period of time in the emergency department. And we all know that we've had to change plans. But it is giving the person that is receiving sign out, it gives them an idea of how high risk the patient is and what you're concerned about. It's not okay to say things like, this patient has right lower quadrant pain, and I'm working them up for a bunch of different things, and I'm waiting for a CT, and you know, here you go. We asked Dr. Smalley, how much information should you be giving on each patient during sign out? Yeah, that's a great question. Because the undifferentiated patient is the patient that you should be spending a significant amount of time on your sign out on. And these are the types of patients that as you're receiving sign out, you should be asking pertinent questions if you're not getting those questions answered by the person signing out. One of the most recent articles that just came out like in the last six months out of, I'm pretty sure it was out of Yale. I was just trying to pull it up. was talking about vital signs. And that was like something that they could quantify because they had research assistants. And I'll talk a little bit about this, this study because I think it's a pretty good study. It's the first study that looked at like trying to quantify like what are we messing up in handoffs. And like what they did is they looked at vital signs and they watched over a period of months people handing off and found that only like 30% of the time were people talking about abnormal vital signs because abnormal vital signs are like a quantifiable, something that they can track and test. So it gets a little bit trickier when you start talking about, because everybody's got their own style. And so how do you put into like a research standpoint, like how do you quantify like that there's an error being made or that there's a something in the handoff? So I actually like this paper because I think it's one of the first papers that has found a way to research-wise prove that the handoff is faulty because they're looking at things that we know are risk. So vital signs are risk in emergency medicine. What's the first thing you learn in residency, right? That vital signs are vital. And so they looked at residents across the board and I'm pretty sure it was at Yale. I have to look, I've got the paper pulled up, but they watched residents sign out to other residents three shifts a day for months at a time and found that like 42% of residents didn't mention hypotension when they were signing off which we know, right, if you're pre-hospital hypotension or you come in and you're hypotensive, that your risk of doing worse on your hospitalization is significantly higher. And yet these people were signing off and missing the vital signs, missing hypoxia. I like this paper because I think it's a very quantifiable way of talking about the way we hand off. Maybe we can talk a little bit about the receiving end of things. So Mm -hmm. how do I take sign out effectively, maybe in this situation, if I'm left with an undifferentiated patient, what's kind of the mental steps I should take to make sure that I'm not stopping prematurely or just ending with the explicit instructions of the person signing out to me? How do you think about it when you're receiving sign out, maybe on somebody who's undifferentiated? Yeah, that's a great question. Absolutely. I think in the emergency department, there's a couple of things that I'm looking for that are key in sign out. 
The first key is getting a succinct history of what the patient's there for and vital signs. So I constantly will ask the physician signing out, you know, were there any abnormal vital signs or depending on the system that you're using, the EMR that you're using, I will scroll through and look at all the vital signs as the physician is signing out to me. And if I find an abnormal vital sign, I will almost always bring it up during the sign out. So that's number one, getting a good succinct history and getting the vital signs of that patient. The second part is what's pending. So what are we waiting for? Where are you guys in the workup? And what am I going to be following up on? And then the third part of the sign out for me that I find the most important is what's the plan? And if that plan falls apart, what's the next plan? So it's that tree type of branching thought process in which we've talked about briefly, which is if this happens, then I plan on doing this. And if this happens, I would plan on doing that. It's very, very rare that somebody that's signing out to you that gives you a quote unquote bomb sign out is trying to give you a bomb sign out. They just maybe haven't had the patient in the department long enough to see what their clinical course is going to be. Maybe there was a resuscitation going on and they got a chance to walk in there and ask three pertinent questions, but they really don't know the good etiology behind their chest pain. They're not purposely trying to give you limited information. They may themselves only have limited information because of what we talked about in the emergency department, these multiple distractors that go on. And that sign out is really a time to sit down amongst the team and clarify plans, but also identify people that maybe had a little bit of a short change in their workup or maybe needed a little bit of extra time, but the department got crazy and they got triaged as somebody maybe not very high risk, but they need another evaluation. And so that's kind of the opportunity when I think about signing out, I think of it as an opportunity to kind of make sure that we've completed every patient's workup. And if there's people that had maybe a cursory workup as the position coming on to say, you know what, I get it. You guys were really busy. I'll go in, I'll reevaluate this patient and let you know what I think. And then I'll come back out. And if you completely disagree with my interpretation of what's going on, then now, now we can really sit down and have a good conversation about what the plan for this patient should be. So I think there's a couple things to highlight here. First is really giving a good if-then plan for sign-outs. The second is that sign-out isn't necessarily something that's done at the desk and that it can be done at the bedside. And especially for patients where there's still a lot of decisions that need to be made and they may be particularly sick. Our next question for Dr. Smalley was, if there had been any studies that had been done to look at the effectiveness of different sign-out strategies? It was done by the Emergency Medicine Patient Safety Foundation, and they implemented a sign-out tool, but it was in a private practice realm. And then they, they rolled it out, and they talk about kind of barriers that physicians had with signing out, how it was hard to implement the tool, and how emergency medicine physicians you know, we feel like we do it well. Um, and we do overall when you compare it across different groups in medicine. But they ran into a lot of people having difficulty because it's a standardized sign out form that you run through. In some ways, if you if you think about the way you sign out, everybody is 
doing some sort of written or mental sign out in their head and they're taking down pertinent key facts as as you're signing out between two people and this kind of standardizes it and so some people threw up you know a little bit of a fit in trying to do this because it feels uncomfortable but after it's been implemented they kind of went through and started doing some data and I haven't looked at all of their data but they've found that it's actually significantly improved outcomes Physicians were concerned it was going to take longer, right? Well, now you've given me this form and I have to go through things and this is not, you know, time effective for me. But at the end of the day, when they were, had implemented it for a long period of time, the signouts were safer and it was just as quick and there was no kind of lagging care, that kind of thing. So you think that formalized signout is coming? Yes, I think formalized signout is coming. We all know that we work amongst physicians where you like taking sign out from some people and you feel like when you take sign out, those patients, their trajectory in terms of their path stays exactly the way you were kind of told it would. Even if a patient is undifferentiated, you know the patient's undifferentiated and therefore you have a heightened level of awareness of making sure that you're staying on top of a patient that was signed out to you because you've received good sign out. But I don't think that that happens across the board. Every person that's signing out wants their patient to do well, even if they don't know what's particularly wrong with the patient. No physician wants to be known as the person that signs out bombs. Remember, there was a time not long ago where people were like, man, you're the bomb. You are the bomb. It was okay to be the bomb, but you don't want to be the person that signs out the bombs. That is a very important distinction. We just wanted to make sure it was super clear as part of this podcast. All right. On that note, we are going to talk to Dr. Smalley a little bit about how do we talk to our colleagues in other specialties when we are handing off patients to them. As an attending physician in a teaching facility, One of the things that I do with all of my interns is I make them present to me before they present to the inpatient service. It is amazing how much you can teach somebody and how much they learn by hearing themselves present a patient that they're trying to admit to an attending physician who has a lot of experience with good sign out and trying to get patients admitted and then talking with them about the teaching points of why their phone call, their fake phone call was effective or ineffective. That's the first thing. And I, and maybe that's one of the reasons that I'm, I'm so attuned to what people say when they sign out is because I make a lot of the residents do this presentation to me before they call the inpatient service. So one of the things when they call the inpatient service is they will start presenting to me and I will let them present. And at the end of the conversation, I'll say, so what are you admitting the patient for? And they'll be like, well, I just told you I'm admitting the patient, you know, he has a history of a heart attack and he's got chest pain. And I said, no, you never said that. The inpatient team has lost you. At that point, they're frustrated. They're annoyed. They're busy. They don't understand why the patient's being admitted. When you're talking to the inpatient team, a couple of key pieces of advice. Number one, Tell them what you're admitting the patient for right off the bat, and then describe to them the reasons, the workup, and the interventions that you've done in the emergency department that make this patient worthy for their service. 
And if you start to frame your conversations with the inpatient side like that, admitting patients becomes a very jovial and friendly process. And you make friends on the inpatient services. They trust you. They understand what you're bringing in the patient for. And then when you have that patient that just doesn't eyeball well, you don't really have anything concrete in the labs or in the studies to show that there's something wrong, you have a reputation of saying, you know, I've done this workup and I'm bringing this patient in because they have undifferentiated abdominal pain. I've done this great workup, but I'll tell you, this patient does not eyeball well. They're not going to go home and stay home. They're going to come back. And once you've built that rapport with a lot of the inpatient services, they'll say, you know, yeah, okay, not a problem. The other thing, the last thing I would say is at the end of the conversation, I always say, is there anything else that you would like me to do down here? Is there anything else you would like me to add on? Now, this is not an open invitation to say, sure, I will do your lumbar puncture for you, or I will do some hour-long procedure down here that is not indicated in the emergency department. But it is an opportunity to say, you know, I've given you what I think is going on. Is there anything else that you think that would help you working up this patient as they continue on their transition upstairs? Full well knowing that in this day and age, patients wait two, three, four hours to get a bed upstairs. And there's this long pause in between the time that we stop caring for them and that the inpatient team really picks up. So these are really important nuggets of wisdom from Dr. Smalley. It is our job to make it easy for our colleagues to take great care of our patients when we hand them off to them. These are skills that we develop over time. And the more focused time that we put into practicing communicating, the better we're going to do it. And it turns out that our ability to communicate is key in the outcome of our patients. Thank you, Dr. Smalley. So we're going to cycle back to our patient again. Sign out has occurred. He's gone down to the CT scanner. The CT scan is up and the team takes a look through it. We've talked a decent amount of radiology already with Dr. Kendall and with Dr. Molina, but now we get to talk to one of our favorite radiologists at Denver Health about general imaging of the spine and the abdomen and about how we can optimize our radiology choices and about how we can build effective relationships in the hospital that optimize our patient care. My name's Dr. Elizabeth D. I work at Denver Health Medical Center as a diagnostic radiologist. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Let's go back to when he first comes in. So we have an elderly gentleman who's coming in with back pain, and we know that he's had instrumentation of his back in the past, but we're looking at kidney stones. So when we're looking at kidney stones, what are the options we have for imaging them? And how, do we, how would you guide us in making the decision of how to look for that? Well, if somebody called me from the emergency room and was asking for advice on what to do, uh, and their specific question was, does this guy have a potentially obstructing stone? There's a couple ways to do it. The first is you can take the cheapest, most economical route by doing ultrasound. If it's completely normal and there's no dilation of the collecting system, even if the guy has a stone, it may not be significant enough to act upon in terms of needing to call urology. But if there is dilation then you can either just use that alone or you can use that as an impetus to go on to do CT. So if we get an ultrasound, are the results enough to make a decision, yes or no, we need to do more? So 
yes, dilation, we can say that there is obstruction, no dilation, as long as the urine looks good too, that doesn't need to be imaged further at that point. Well, it really depends on the clinical scenario. That's what Perfect. makes radiology and emergency medicine a critical pairing and partnership. So if you're not suspecting anything else and it's simply kidney stones that you're concerned about, having a negative ultrasound and a negative urine may be enough, but it really is patient dependent. Okay. But it's certainly reassuring if you had two negatives like that together. Together. Okay. And I think that's great because that helps us. We're consistently, I think, more interested in radiation and finding ways to do this without exposing people to it for this very common presentation, I think, is, is something important for us to, to keep looking at. So if we have a patient that comes in that we're concerned about a couple things going on, like, like I said, we're, and this gentleman, diverticulitis is maybe not off the picture as, as he's coming in. He has back pain in, in the past and instrumentation, so maybe infection's not off the table as he rolls in. How does adding contrast change your ability to see stones in the collecting system? Well, a lot of times you can still see stones when there's contrast on board. So it doesn't necessarily prevent you from diagnosing CT stones. But traditionally, when we're looking for specifically CT, finding stones by CT, you don't need contrast. And if you don't need to do something, you don't want to do it because there's the potential for a contrast allergy. The patient has to get an IV. Those can be uncomfortable. All those factors, it's, it's added cost okay. to the patient and to the hospital. And you can get a person in and out with a, just a non-contrast CT very quickly. It's a very specific and easy way to find a stone by CT. Okay. So I feel like we've hit two of our main imaging modalities when we're looking for stone. The first is ultrasound. The second, CT scan. And those are the ones we use most often. But what's the utility of just x-rays for kidney stones? Well, there is a role, but it tends to be one where you're following stones through their progress through the collecting system. So when I read a CT looking for stone and I find one, I always go back and look at the scalp, which is an x-ray, right? So you get an x-ray for free and you look and see, can I see that stone on that scalp view? If I can see it, I try to tell in my report and, you know, if I talk to you where it is so that if you decide that you want to follow this by x-ray and make sure it's progressing through the collecting system, you can do it with an easy x-ray and not with repeating the more expensive modalities like ultrasound or CT. So this is a different incident. Six months later, it comes back. We assume that he's passed the first stone. When they come back with pain the second time, can you use x-ray to now look at it and say, hey, there's stones in the past we've been able to see on x-ray. Is it reliable to just get an x-ray the next time and say, we can either see a stone or not? That's a possibility, although I would say what matters most about stones is the degree of obstruction, which you're not necessarily going to see on an x-ray, meaning you don't know how much that stone is causing in terms of obstruction. And that's something you're only going to see on a CT or an ultrasound. So in that case, it may not be appropriate. Let me ask the trend, at least what I've seen in the last few years, at least in the emergency medicine literature, is that we feel you can see more with IV contrast and it doesn't decrease your ability to discern stone disease in those patients. And right or wrong, emergency medicine physicians ordering CT scans with IV contrast, not knowing what we're looking for, has been termed a fishing expedition. I'm just wondering from your standpoint, have you noticed a change maybe in the way people are ordering studies, uh, 
maybe a prevalence of IV contrast that's uh, becoming more evident as you look at these studies and, and are being asked to kind of narrow the differential more? Or do you feel like we're still asking for CT scans with a clear question in mind? That's an interesting question. I have to think about it for a second. Okay. Because a lot of times when somebody comes into an emergency room, it is a fishing expedition, and that's what you should expect. You don't have a long-term relationship with those patients. And so you're starting from ground zero. You have nothing except what that patient is telling you and you're looking at. So that's a completely reasonable place to start sometimes. So I don't always have the expectation that you guys, you know, have a lot of information at hand. So I'm willing as your peer to go with what you think is the best thing to do at, at that juncture. But that's, that's based on a partnership. You know, I've worked at this hospital long enough that I have a working relationship, albeit over the phone. I mean, I have relationships with people in the emergency room I've never seen before. Spencer is one of the few people I actually know what he looks like in real life. <laughs> and I work 20 feet away. It's just that there's a few doors between us. So that's the difference. But if you are working with people that you trust, then I'm willing to go on that expedition with them. And how do you feel that relationship is developed? I mean, with Spencer, you've had some interactions with him, but over the phone with attendings you may not have seen for or maybe ever. How do you feel that that relationship develops or how do you cultivate that relationship just over the phone? Well, it's easy because nowadays we're media oriented, right? So you don't have to always see someone's face. We're more used to this now. We're more used to having that interaction that isn't the traditional handshake and looking at a face. That makes it better, obviously, but you don't have to have that nowadays. And do you feel like as a radiologist, you're included in the discussion more now as far as planning for studies, getting more background from the attending physician or from the primary physician? Do you feel like you're, you're advantaged or do you feel that there's maybe a time crush or efficiency pressures that prevent you from necessarily getting all the information you may have gotten years ago? I'm not relying on the emergency room physician to give me all the information at this point. I have access to your information, at least the preliminary information that's garnered by the, by the nurse in many cases, or I can look in the medical records. I'm not wholly relying on you, but I definitely try to cultivate a personal relationship and a professional relationship with people. I mean, that is a goal of mine because a radiologist can seem superfluous to the conversation at times. I have no problem trying to insert myself in when I feel it's necessary. Overimaging in the emergency department is a huge concern, and it's always in my mind. We get people with renal colic not infrequently who may have just had a scan a week ago, a month ago, or half a year ago. And I guess, do you see that as a problem, and do you run into that? Is it at all frustrating to you? How do you respond when you see patients maybe receiving multiple CT scans in a year's time? It's definitely a big issue in radiology as well. It used to frustrate me much more than it does, but I've developed a different attitude, I think, towards it. I don't throw up my hands and say, 
what are these guys doing? I mean, occasionally that happens, of course. But typically, I end up just calling and working the problem through with the person who's ordering it because we work in a situation where we have residents. They don't always know what to do. And even attendings, they may start going down a, a pathway and need to just get a little bit of reorientation. And that's sort of what it's all about. That's why I became a radiologist, to have those conversations with other physicians. That's the part I enjoy. But definitely overimaging is is a huge issue, but it's one that takes education. We're now going to move on from the kidney system. We still have the concern for our patient because they've had the manipulation of their back before, and he's coming in with back pain here. So let's talk a little bit about imaging options that we have for the spine kind of as a whole. And let's start with the advantages and the disadvantages of x-rays and what we can evaluate with x-rays of the spine. Let's not talk about the C-spine. I think that's a different conversation. But in terms of the thoracic and lumbar spine, what are the advantages of x-ray and what can we see and what would we miss on those? When a patient comes in with back pain and they've had manipulation, surgery, and so forth, an x-ray is an excellent place to start. Because hardware can fail, and you can see that very easily on an x-ray. In fact, better than you can perhaps see on other imaging modalities. You get a lot of beam-hardening artifact when you do CT scans that can make it difficult to see loosening around the screws. And the same thing happens in MR. You get a lot of artifact from the metal. So a great overview is an x-ray. It's a perfect place to start. Let me ask There's always this cone down view of L5. Who cares and so what? (laughs) Well, L5 is, is where a lot happens. And so that's why we spend more time looking at that. There's PARS defects, which are bony defects in the ring that keeps the vertebra stable. And so people can develop neurologic symptoms based on that. There's a lot of people who have it and nothing's wrong. There's a lot of degenerative change that occurs there. You can get compression fractures. That's possible. but So there's a lot of things that can occur. Let me ask, how worried should I be about something called anterolisthesis? <laughs> Would you like me to define that? Just spell it first. I can look <laughs> it up. I just don't know how to spell it. So The spelling word for today is... Yeah, that's the problem with radiology. Of a sentence. <laughs> that's the problem with radiology. There's words that we use that other people may not be familiar with. And so... It's always important to know what you're reading, right? Anterolisthesis is where you get anterior displacement of the vertebral body, okay? And it can be from lots of different things. It's just telling you that the vertebral body has moved forward. It can be from a pars defect. It can be from degenerative change at the facets. It can be from a fracture. It just means that it's moved. Great. And I think in our use of the plane films, we see that often on the reports, And I think it must be that overwhelmingly it's degenerative change, a chronic evolution of a pars defect, and and infrequently due to acute trauma. But certainly if we have the correct story and you see that, you don't want to gloss over that. Right. Our job is to accumulate data, and that data may be important or not important, and you just have to process that and synthesize it and come up with a plan. Okay. So we've uh, talked about x-rays. Let's talk about CT scans. So what is the use of CT scans in the thoracic and lumbar spine? What are they really good at picking up? What do we miss with it? And why do we miss important things on CT scan? 
So CT scan of the spine is excellent for bony detail. Anything that has to do with bone, you're going to see well on a CT scan. So fractures, you're going to see bone tumors, lytic and sclerotic. So lytic means bone goes away. Sclerotic means it gets denser. Those types of detail you're going to see very well on a CT scan. It misses soft tissue processes, especially within the canal. And the reason is, is that the detail in the canal is limited because it's a relatively small space and the bone surrounding it makes it hard to look on the inside to the degree that you can see it on an MR. Are there any advantages of giving contrast when we're looking at back pain to e evaluate the patient? Contrast with a CT scan? Yeah, contrast with the CT scan. If you suspected that there was a soft tissue mass that you might be able to see, like maybe a paravertebral, meaning around the front portion of the vertebral body, there may be some utility to it. But really, it has fairly limited utility because the reason you're doing that CT scan, if you're specifically interested in the spine, is more for bony detail. And the bone's really not going to change its appearance if you give contrast. The only other reason I can think you might give contrast on a CT scan, although MR would be better for this, is if you had a, a vascular malformation that extended outside of the boundaries of the canal. But really, MR is much better at, at that than CT. So there's not much utility in giving contrast. It won't hurt you, but it's not going to help you. Let's talk about our other imaging modality that we use, which is MRI. And what are the real advantages of MRI when we're looking at the spine? MRI is a real workhorse for neuroradiology. And in terms of the spine, it gives you incredible detail on lots of structures. Even though you see bony detail well on a CT, it isn't as good at showing you the marrow. So the marrow is not the dense bone. It's the stuff in between those trabeculations. So tumors are seen well. You see the disc really well. You can see whether the disc is hydrated, whether it's infected. You get to see the epidural space. You can see inside the canal. You can see all the nerve roots. It's just got incredible detail, and you're never going to get that with a CT. Let me rephrase that. You can get it with a CT to some limited degree if you do a myelogram, and we will do that on patients occasionally for processes that occur in the canal but not typically through the emergency room. And that tends to be for people who can't get an MRI for whatever reason, and they have disc problems, and they're trying to decide whether or not they need to do surgery. So in your circumstance, that would not be an appropriate study because it takes a very long time to do, or longer than you would need in the emergency room. MRI is fantastic for spine processes like this guy might be having, you're not sure. It shows you discs very well. So if the guy had a back problem related to degenerative disc disease, that would be fantastic. It shows you inside the canal all the detail. You can find epidural processes. You can find tumors within the canal. It gives you just really the best look at the spine, including the, the, the bone and inside the canal that you can get in imaging today. And how do we decide when to use contrast or when not to? There's often this conversation that we have with radiology in planning a study like this. Is there three or four things that you absolutely do or don't want to use contrast for if you, if you know some clinical history about the patient? When you give contrast in an MRI, it's almost the same as, as CT. You get 
enhancement of soft tissues. So soft tissues around the vertebral bodies will enhance, epidural abscesses will enhance, bone marrow, you can see tumors, they will enhance or not enhance relative to background marrow. So it's the same enhancement properties that you see with CT, but just in a different modality. Can you just talk briefly about any concerns you might have about the disadvantages of giving contrast, renal failure, contrast reactions, or even more rare sequelae of IV contrast with MRIs? Yeah. Well, the one thing that people think about most is allergies, right? That's a very common occurrence in CT that we're concerned with. There have been cases of allergies to gadolinium, but they are much rarer than the allergic reactions you get with IV contrast in CT. But it is something to be considered. And definitely if somebody, we have had patients that have come in and said that they have an allergy. And in those circumstances, we do not give it. There's also been evidence to show that gadolinium accumulates in the brain. We don't know whether that has any effect yet. That is to be determined. And in general, I would say that radiologists, at least at this institution, we tend to do a lot more checking of our studies before giving contrast to see whether we really need to give it. Now, you can't always predict when you need it and when you don't, right? So when in doubt, you're probably going to give it because the benefit is greater than the disadvantages in certain circumstances. And then the other process is when somebody has reduced renal function, if you give them gadolinium, they can develop a skin condition that causes sclerosis. And that's pretty much vanished with the new regulations that hospitals have put into place restricting the use of gadolinium. We'd like to thank Dr. D for joining us here today. It's been a pleasure to have you. And your expertise is really, it's something that I, that's valuable, I think, in this uh, setting, but also in our department and in the hospital. It's great. It's been a pleasure. So once again, we'd like to thank Dr. D and Dr. Smalley for their expertise and for taking some time to help us come to a better understanding of how to evaluate our patient. At this point, let's put some of the pieces of the puzzle together that will hopefully help us come to an understanding of what's brought them to the emergency department and possibly what his final diagnosis is going to be. So at this point, the patient has a CT scan that doesn't necessarily show us the answer, and there's no urinalysis back yet. And it seems like maybe it got lost in the shuffle. The patient wasn't able to give a urine or didn't ask to give a urine. So the nurses were asked to help get the patient to the restroom to give a urine sample for a urinalysis. And at that point, the nurse comes up to the team and says, I tried to get our patient to the bathroom, but he just can't walk. And that changed his entire course through the emergency department and into the hospital. At that point, the team went and reevaluated the CT scan. They recognized the heavily trabeculated bladder that suggested either chronic outlet obstruction or a neurogenic bladder condition. And they noticed a normal sized prostate, making outlet obstruction much less likely. Also obvious on the films were the hardware in the low back. And with the concerns of an elevated white count, fever, inability to walk, in the setting of those multiple previous surgeries, it became clear to the team what in fact was likely going on. On our next episode, we'll go through the team's thought process at that point 
We'll talk to the consultants they brought on board. We'll also talk to experts who were brought on to help care for the patient throughout his course in the hospital. Join us next time for the final episode of Undifferentiated. A few final nuggets of goodness with Dr. D. How long until the computers can do that better than we can do it? <laughs> That's a great question. When are we going to become irrelevant, right? When are we going to be irrelevant? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, we can always unplug a computer. You have not seen Terminator if you think that we can unplug the computers. <laughs> That's an interesting question. Stop laughing, Spencer. <laughs> was it, let me just go back. It, was that an interesting question? It is an interesting okay, question good. because right. I have to – no, genuinely, it is an interesting question. Right. <clears throat> um, I'm uh, enjoying watching you guys squabble. Okay. So I have one last question and this has to do with your treadmill. Um, so you are currently are – you, are you walking – so Dr. D works on a treadmill – um, and, uh, so where, where are you walking to right now? Well, right now I'm on my way to Mexico city from San Francisco and I'm about halfway there. So you're in like, you're serious drug territory right now. Like <laughs> this is, you're probably in the middle of like the hardcore. hardcore I might be, like, I'm not sure. I you, try not to dwell on the negatives. I try to think positively. And I'm so definitely you, you feel over the, safe south on the, of the journey. Border. You're south of the, you feel safe on the journey. I right feel now. virtually safe. Yes, that, virtually safe. That's good. The last thing is bloviate is up on your uh, board right now. Would it, tell me a little bit about that. Isn't it a great word? It could be. I have no. Do you idea. know what it means? No idea. I thought you just misspelled Bolivia. <laughs> <laughs> bloviate means to 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 talk endlessly and needlessly about stuff that nobody cares, like a, being a blowhard. And it's such a great word. Why do I think that's the name of our podcast? That should be bloviate. should just be exactly what it is. Here so, it was today. This is uh, August 18th of 2015. Bloviate. You can make it Dr. Bloviate. That's, uh, that's so good. Uh, do you put a new word up every day? Um, no. I put up things that I'm interested in. Like did you notice that I have Julian Bond – up there. So he died this weekend. Yeah. Big civil rights leader. Yeah. And really good guy. So I just put his name up to remind myself about that sounds very Pollyanna-ish, but I just put things up that I think of. It's not every day. It's just whenever the, the mood strikes.